Good morning, Hope. Glad you're here. We also want to welcome those who are listening uh, via our live stream. We average 25 to 30, uh, probably the best way to describe it is devices uh, that are connected to our live stream on a, on a Sunday morning. So I want to welcome those who are listening right now. It's a great option. If you can't uh, be here for whatever reason, uh, you can still participate uh, in our entire Service. I want to encourage you to have your Bibles open uh, to Mark chapter 8. We're going to finish chapter 8 and move into uh, chapter 9. And as you're turning there, I just want to share some exciting news. Uh, I want to let you know uh, that Weston and Lauren Muniak, Lauren is our children's ministry uh, director, they welcomed Julian Stanley uh, into, I don't have a picture, I'm sorry, uh, uh, but they welcomed him into their family uh, on Wednesday evening. Uh, he is doing well, Lauren and Weston and Aline are doing well. He was a, he was a big boy, um, nine pounds, five ounces, uh, 21 inches long. Um, so they're doing well. Just want to, we're excited for them and their family. Um, so if you know Lauren or Weston, just want to encourage you maybe to send them a note, a text, an email, just encouraging uh, them as they welcome, again, Julian Stanley uh, to their family this week. So I believe you've all had the experience of one moment being on cloud nine, and maybe the next moment or the next day being in the basement. <laughs> it's a human experience. We've all had it. Maybe one day uh, you have a parent win, and like the next day you have one of your worst parent fails. Uh, maybe at work you're getting praise because of a project you finished on time or under budget or uh, whatever you might have done. And the next week, you're, you did a huge blunder. You missed something. You forgot about something. Uh, we see this in sports all the time. One moment, you were ready to build the statue, uh, the, pers- the athlete statue outside the stadium. And the next week, we're calling for his, his or her trade. You know, like it's like get rid of them, you know. Uh, it's, a, it's a human experience. We, we are up one moment. We get it, we have a win, so to speak, and then the next moment or week or day, we blow it. We all have had that experience, maybe more than we care to admit. And today, we're going to see that experience lived out because, again, it's a human experience. We're going to see it lived out in Mark chapter 8 in just the first verse of chapter 9. We're going to watch Jesus' disciples who were, who were humans just like us who in a moment, within a matter of just a few verses, they get it. They, there's a win. They, they're at the head of the class, so to speak. And then the next moment, they blow it. They miss it. And even watch how Jesus responds to them and what we can learn from them. And what we're watching in a moment is a great confession. And then the next moment, there's great confusion within just a matter of a few verses. We have this confession, and then we have great confusion. So let me read the verses we're going to look at today and learn from today, and then we'll just work our way through them. Starting in verse, we'll start in verse 27 of Mark chapter 8. It says this, Jesus and his disciples went on, the, on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, who do people say I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. But what about you? He asked, who do you say I am? Peter answered, you are the Christ. Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. 
He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned around and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world, yet forfeit his soul? Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his Father's glory and with the holy, with the holy angels. And then just verse 1 of chapter 9. And then he said to them, I tell you the truth, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God come with power. Before we move into the disciples' confession and confusion, there's a few things we need to think about as it relates, I believe they're important for us to know, as it relates to location. Two parts, of, two aspects of location I want to just highlight before we move into their confession and confusion. First is geography. And then the Gospel of Mark. I want us to think first about geography as it relates to location. Where, where are Jesus and his disciples? And over these weeks, we've looked at a, several maps because Mark is, is giving us a detail about where they are in this part of Mark, when this narrative that he's, he's talking about, the stories that he's sharing. And we learn that in, in verse 27, Jesus and his disciples went on to Caesarea Philippi. Caesarea Philippi is right up there in the north, uh, near the top of that map in the red. Their last, the last portion of Mark that uh, Jesus was in with his disciples was in a little place called Bethsaida. And Bethsaida was a place where uh, the man born, uh, the man that was blind, I don't know if he was born blind, but he was blind. Uh, Jesus takes him outside of the village. He spits, uh, another one of the spitting uh, miracles, and he heals the man. He takes him outside and he, I mean, he says, do you, what do you see now? And he says, I see people, but they kind of look like trees. And Jesus prays for him again and he's healed. And that Bethsaida, it's not on this map, but it's actually south of Caesarea Philippi. So Jesus and his disciples, from what we read last week and the way Mark is uh, describing this narrative, Jesus' disciples go north. They go to what would be known, Caesarea Philippi is known as the, the, the boundary line, if you will, the furthest place you can go and still be in what was called the promised land. The promised land was the geographic region right here that, that God had promised uh, the Jews, his people. This was the promised land. And Caesarea Philippi was basically the furthest place you could go north and still be in what was known then as the promised land. It's the far boundary, the far northern boundary. If you cross over and move further north, you're stepping out of the promised land. And it's interesting that Jesus goes north. From Bethsaida, he goes north. And it's interesting to note that he will go north 
But then from this point on, he will begin the long journey from Caesarea Philippi all the way down to Jerusalem. And what takes place in Jerusalem, I think we all know. Once he's in Jerusalem, you have the triumphal entry. He comes in and, and just quick snapshot of what happens in Jerusalem. He's, he's, he's betrayed. He's arrested. He's tried, if you can call it a trial. Uh, he's tried. He's tortured. And then he's crucified. That will all take place in Jerusalem. But before, it's interesting to me that before Jesus just from Bethsaida, it would have been, a, and again, they're walking friends. Like, it's not jumping in the car and you're there in a few hours. So you would think you're walking. You make, like, you, you know you're going, Jesus knows he's going to Jerusalem. That's where he has to go. But before he goes there, before he starts that long journey, and it was a long journey even from where he was in Bethsaida itself, he goes further north, about 25 miles further north. And then we'll begin the long journey down to Jerusalem. Why? I believe there's probably a number of reasons why. But one is, I believe Jesus wants to spend as much time as he can with his disciples before he gets to Jerusalem. He wants to maximize the journey. And what's going to take place over, we've seen amazing things happen, amazing displays of power, uh, Jesus' power on display throughout the mark up to this point. And we're going to see more of that, but not as much. There's going to be a lot of teaching along the way as they make their way from Caesarea Philippi all the way down to Jerusalem. He wants as much time. And I, in a way, I believe Jesus is saying to them and to us, the journey is just as important as the destination. See, it's not just about just get to Jerusalem, but it's about the journey going there and what they will learn along the way. Now, this is a little different than a road trip. Lori and I took advantage of our kids being out of school on Thursday, Friday, so we made a, a little bit of a road trip to visit some friends. On that time of road trip, the destination is vitally important. Like, it's not about just the journey getting there. Tell me, I mean, driving back last night, like, I wish Ohio was closer right now. I mean, you, you've been there, you know, you've driven like, but, but this, this here in Mark chapter 8, it's not just about getting to Jerusalem, but it's about the journey getting to Jerusalem and what the disciples will learn along the way. It's interesting to think about the imagery that we use to describe our walk with God. And when we think about destination, what comes to my mind is the life to come, when God's kingdom fully comes, uh, shows up on this earth. There's a new heaven and a new earth, and his kingdom is here, the life to come. We're, not, we're living for a life beyond just this life. And sometimes we can get caught up in just that life to come, and that life to come is going to be amazing, more than we can even imagine. But friends, it's not just about holding on and waiting for the life to come. It's also about this journey right now. Getting there is just as important to that life to come. There are things he wants to do in, in, in all of us, reveal in all of us. And we'll talk about them, some of them even today in this, in this passage, that journey, this walk with God, this journey through life is just as important as that destination. Don't miss the journey. 
the walk with God through this life. Jesus went to Caesarea Philippi and he walked with his disciples down, began, and that's where he's going to go from here through the rest of Mark. He's making his way to Jerusalem, the journey south. So that's the first part of location. The second part of location that I find very interesting in light of what we'll talk about next is where does this take place in the Gospel of Mark? The Gospel of Mark has 16 chapters. We find ourselves smack dab in the middle of Mark, the gospel, Mark's narrative, gospel narrative. We're right in the middle of it. And it's interesting the things we'll talk about next. What Jesus, the questions Jesus asks, smack dab in the middle of this gospel. And again, Mark just didn't haphazardly, as he wrote this gospel account, the stories of Jesus' life. And again, Mark doesn't record all the ones that Luke and Matthew and John record, and, and vice versa. They're, they're, there's different stories, some similarities, but some different. But these are the ones that Mark records, um, and he feels led to record and write down, and we learn, are learning from here years later. But as Mark gets to the middle of his gospel account, the middle of this story, Jesus' life, he records these questions. And it's almost in a way that Jesus wants his disciples in a way to look back on, okay, wh what have you seen so far? And who does it reveal about who I am? And then the journey ahead is going to be more further revelations of who Jesus is. But here, right in the middle of the center, so to speak, of this narrative, we have these questions that Jesus could have asked at any point. But Mark puts them right here in, in this part. So now let's, again, from knowing a few things of location and context, let me read again, verse, starting verse, well, first, we're going to talk about, uh, let me read verse 27, and then we'll talk about confession. It says in verse 27, Jesus' disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, that, that phrase, the way, <laughs> Jesus did so much of his teaching, healing, uh, especially with his disciples along the way. And it's even interesting that later in Acts, when, when, when uh, people are trying to describe this movement of, of God's people, the disciples and those that are, have begun fallen, become part of what would be known as the church, the, the, the body of Christ there in the book of Acts, the way they describe this group of people is the way. Later, they'll call them Christians because they look like Christ. <laughs> but earlier, they say they're of the way. When, when Paul, who was uh, Saul, was trying to, uh, who was, who was persecuting and, and, and imprisoning and killing, uh, giving his blessing for the killing of Christians, he, he wanted to stop the way, the people, the group, the movement. And it's interesting that that's the language used to describe Christians, early Christians, was they, they were of the way, on this journey. And here, they're on their way, um, around to the villages around Caesarea Philippi, and Jesus asks some questions. Who do people say that I am? I'd like, tell me, who do people say, the people you've talked to, the people in villages, who do the people here in Caesarea Philippi, who, the people in Beth, Bethsaida, the people are in, in, we've been around the Sea of Galilee, who do they say that I am? And here's the reply, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets, that uh, if you've been with us on this journey, those three responses should sound very familiar. 
Because a few chapters ago, when, when King Herod was beginning, or was hearing, not beginning, but hearing about Jesus and what he was doing, he, when he was trying to figure out who is this guy, these are the exact same answers. John the Baptist, Elijah, and he was like, I killed John. Did he rise from the dead? Or one of the prophets. This is, the, this is what people are talking about. He, he, he's, he's, this is who he is. This is who you are. This is what people, this is the talk on the street, if you will. And then Jesus makes it a little more personal. Not tell, don't tell me what those out there the, on the street, so to speak, in the villages we've been to and are in right now, but what about you? And the you is plural. The you isn't you, Peter, and Peter will, I think Peter is somehow, um, uh, becomes a spokesperson. I don't know if it was Peter's personality that said, I'll speak up. Uh, I think that's where I would go if you're asking me, uh, or if there was an election, and Peter, you, you do it. You know, you're, uh, but somehow Peter is, is decided that, but, but it's not, but what about you? It isn't just Peter. What about you? It's you, the disciples. Who do you say that I am? And Peter, again, Jesus asked the question to the disciples. Peter, though, speaks, I believe, as their representative. Peter speaks and he says, but who, who do you say I am? And Peter answered, he says, you are the Christ. You are the Christ. And Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. Here we have Peter's confession. We have a confession. Peter speaks up. He acknowledges this is who you are. I'm speaking on behalf. We don't know if there was a, this immediate response or if there was, guys, let's huddle. Talk about it. Okay, here's Jesus. Here's what we decided. I don't know how it all worked out, but there's this, this confession that you are the Christ. And if you have a little footnote like I have in uh, my Bible, if you go down to the bottom of your page, what the Christ, what that means is you are the anointed one or you are the Messiah. When a king or a priest was installed or placed into their role as king or priest, they would have been anointed physically. They would have had oil placed or poured, in some cases, on them. And that, that was symbolic of, of being set apart for this role, whatever that role uh, was. There was this anointing, this setting apart of that person for this specific role. And what they are saying here is you are the anointed one. You are the one that has been set aside, anointed, so to speak, for this role as the Messiah, the, the one that we've been waiting for to come and deliver us and, and set us free. You are the Christ. There's a lot in that confession. There's a lot in that declaration. Do you find it interesting? I know I did. Jesus, again, they have this warning. Don't tell anyone about me. You would think it'd be the total opposite. Shout it, like we just sang. <laughs> Shout it from the rooftops. The Messiah is here. The anointed one is here. The one we've been waiting for and longing for to set us free and deliver us and, and return the land. Again, they're living in the land, but they don't own the land. They are, they're under the hand of an oppressor, Rome. Rome's in charge in here in Mark. Or when, when they're living this, not a mark, but when they're living this, Rome is in charge. It's not their land. You would think there'd be this shout it from the rooftops mentality, but Jesus says, 
He warns them, don't tell anyone. Now, again, there's a lot of different reasons why. I think, for, I think one of the reasons I just want to highlight today, why this, this, this warning, why this reining it in, don't, don't tell anyone uh, right now, is Jesus gaining quite a following. When he goes to places, people flood to him and the crowds go to him and, and he's gaining quite a following. And when you start to say or be announced to, especially those in positions of power, uh, in authority, that there is a Messiah coming, those in positions of power of authority are going to wipe out the Messiah. Because they're, they're, that Messiah is, going, is, is a threat to them and their throne and their power. So there's a lot of political uh, um, um, attitudes behind this. This Jesus saying, this isn't the right time right now. There'll be a time, but not right now. The disciples are on this journey. They're on this way. And again, going from Caesarea all the way down to Jerusalem, many miles, many hours, walking together, learning about who Jesus is. And it's interesting to me that Jesus asks a question. I always, it's a fun experience to think about the moments, the times we have recorded for us in Scripture that Jesus asks questions. Or that God asks questions. Again, being the same person. Why is he asking a question? It's not for his information. Like Jesus have, isn't having an identity issue. Like he hasn't forgotten who he is. And he's not looking to his disciples, guys, can you, I'm really struggling today. Like, I don't know why I'm here. I don't know what I'm supposed to do. <laughs> can you remind me? Like, uh, who do you say that I am? It's not, it's not for Jesus' sake that he's asking these questions, this question in spe specifically. So who's, what's, who's, who's it for? I believe it's for his disciples to further develop their walk with God, their faith, who they are, their understanding of who Jesus is. It's so interesting to me, a study of, of all the times God asked questions. One of the most fascinating ones to me is all the way back in Genesis. Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve eat the fruit that they're not supposed to eat, and what do they do? They hide. Their shame, they realize for the first time they're naked and they try to cover themselves and they hear in the garden, which would have been a familiar sound of God walking in the garden with, towards them, they hear that and they run and they hide. Think about that. You are trying to hide from God. God always wins at hide and go seek. But what does he do? Before he just moves the bush, like, I know where you are. <laughs> Found you. <laughs> what do we have? We have a question. And the question is, where are you? God knew where they were. It wasn't for him. So he knew, oh, oh, thanks. You're over there. It was for them. What is he saying? Saying, I'm a God who will come after you. I'm a God who will move towards you. Even when you do something you know you shouldn't have done, I'll move towards you. Where are you? I'm, I'm, I'm pursuing. Come, come out. I'm safe. I love you. And here we have Jesus, again, knowing who he is. He knows he's the Messiah. He knows he's the Christ. He, he knows all these things. But he asks this question of his disciples. Who do you? You, 
disciples, who do you say I am? And he's asking this question along this journey to to further develop and shape their understanding of who he is. And I wonder today, what might be the questions that are surfacing right now on your journey? What do you do with those? Maybe it's this specific question, who do you say I am? Maybe it's other questions that on your journey right now, following God, of walking with God, questions are surfacing. What do you do with those? Do you run away from those? Or do you realize God can use those questions and strategically, I believe, uses those questions to further develop our faith and our understanding of who he is? He's not asking it so he knows the answer. He already knows the answer. But he's asking it for us and his disciples. There's an incredible confession. And just in a moment, (laughs) we will see incredible confusion. Incredible confusion. Let me read again. They've just declared, you are the Christ, you are the Messiah, you're the anointed one. But their understanding or their, their, their expectations is a better way to say it. Their expectations of what the Messiah should do and how he should act is way off. So right after this confession, Jesus begins, he says, begin to teach them. He began to teach them. He begins to talk to them. It says in verse 31, he began to talk to them. I want to, we've talked, we just declared this, I'm the Messiah, but I want to, I'm going to teach you what what this means and how this is going to flesh out and play out. He says, begin to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, three groups of people, the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, and he must be killed and after three days, he's going to rise again. So he's saying, this is my role. This is what the, as Messiah, as the anointed one, this is what's going to happen to me. This is the first time in Mark, and it won't be the last time, but this is the first time in Mark that Mark begins to lay out, here's what's going to be happening to me. I'm going to suffer, I'm going to be rejected, I'm going to be killed, and then three days later, I'm rising again. And they're like, no. Because from their, in their perspective, based on the way they've been taught from being, from young boys, this is not what is supposed to happen with the Messiah. They are picturing a, a military leader coming in probably on a horse with an army and wiping out their enemies coming into power, being on the throne, giving them the land back and the power back. That's what they're expecting. And now he's saying, wait a minute, I'm going to suffer, be rejected, and be killed. And they don't have categories for what Jesus is saying. Even though there are texts in the Old Testament that they would have studied, but but they, they just didn't understand them. We can look back and say, how didn't you get it? It's easy. There's prophecies. There's so many of them in the Old Testament. Now listen, (laughs) we have years to look back and say, how'd you miss all these things, these clues? How'd you miss the breadcrumbs, so to speak? But again, they're living it. And they didn't expect the Messiah, Jesus, to be saying, I'm going to be rejected. I'm going to suffer and be rejected and then killed and then rise again. 
and you get a sense of how disturbing this is to them. I love verse 32. I love that this is recorded for us in the Bible. He spoke plainly to them. Jesus, that's an interesting detail because many times he spoke in parables and you're like, what are you saying? But here he's saying, I'm just going to speak very plainly. No stories, no imagery, no, no mustard seed, no, you know, none of that. Like no uh, kingdom of heaven is like, here it is. He spoke plainly about this. And this is great. I would, oh man, to be a fly on a wall. And Peter took him aside. I love Peter. Oh. And Peter took him aside <laughs> and began to rebuke him. <laughs> wow. And again, I don't, I believe Peter probably is acting on, on, on representing the whole group. I don't think this is just Peter. I, I think there was, well, Peter, you said, you know, you said he's the Christ. Like he's wrong. Someone's going to educate him a little bit. It's like you and I trying, because we played quarterback in Pop Warner football, telling Baker Mayfield how to play quarterback for the Browns. Like, that's one of the reasons I love talk radio, sports talk radio. These people call in, they, you know, I played high school football. I'm glad you played high school football. I played court, I'm glad you, but you didn't play in the NFL. And you're telling Baker Mayfield how to play quarterback in the NFL. I, I love it. But it's like, you can't do, like, this is crazy. But it's great at the very same time. They have this such human experience and moment here that Peter, again, I think speaking on behalf of all the rest of the disciples, began to rebuke Jesus and say, Jesus, like, what you just said, like that, that's, not gonna, that's not supposed to happen. That's not the plan. And Jesus, uh, when he turned, and it says in verse 33, when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. And, and again, I think it's a rebuke to Peter, but I think it's also a rebuke. He's looking at the disciples to, to all of them. Like he's rebuking them. And he says, get behind me, Satan. Now he's not saying Peter or the disciples are possessed by Satan in this moment. But what he's saying is you are trying to hinder like Satan would and tries to do the plans of God. And it might seem harsh, but he doesn't get rid of the disciples. He doesn't say, man, been with you guys a long time. Well, time to start again. Get another group of 12 who get it, who understand it. No, he teaches them more. He says, you do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. You don't, you don't understand God's plans. You have in mind your own plans, your own ways of doing things. This is how you feel like it should go. And, and, and just a few things here that I want to just kind of extract from this, this conversation, this, this interaction between Jesus and his disciples. Again, one is the disciples, again, who had the incredible privilege of actually walking and seeing Jesus do the things we read about in the New Testament. They struggle to fully understand who he is. And it's amazing to me how Jesus treats them. How Again, it seems like a, this, like, I don't think it's yelling, but he's saying, like, realize you have the wrong things in mind. And he doesn't throw them to the trash heap. He doesn't say, well, Peter, thanks for coming. I'm picking someone new. 
but he stays with Peter, even through some other things that Peter will do. And for you and I, there are moments of confusion. But we don't get it. We don't understand. We don't comprehend. And I want you to know, it's okay. It's okay. It's part of this journey. There's going to be moments of confusion. And the second thing we need to, I want to just extract from this is I believe as we, we talk about this process of discipleship and, and formation, the formation process of becoming more and more like Jesus on this journey of following him, uh, I believe George Panna said this when he was preaching a few weeks ago, uh, this process of discipleship, and this thought, what George said has been stick, uh, stuck with me now for a number of weeks. It's not, the process of discipleship is learning, learning more information and learning new things about who God is and who we are. But at the very same time, it's also also a process of unlearning some things. The disciples had some things in their mind. This is the way it should go. This is the way the Messiah should act. And Jesus said, this is the way I'm going to act. And there are some things, some pretty significant theological things they needed to unlearn as much as learn. And that's the process we're on of we're learning and we're also unlearning some things on this journey. So then Jesus, again, not, he doesn't say, well, we're starting new, get, you know, I want 12 new disciples. Or he, he teaches them. He cares for them. He wants them to know this is, if you're going to follow me, this is what you need to know. And he called the crowd, uh, he crowd to him along with his disciples. So it's not just the 12 there. There's a sense of there's a larger group there. This isn't just for the 12, but it's for the crowds that's been following him. And he says, I want you to know some things. If anyone would come after me, if you want to follow me, here's what you need to know. He must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whatever, whoever loses life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it? And this kind of is getting into like, what good is it about your life? Don't waste your life. What good is it? Giving perspective. What good is it for a man to gain everything, the whole world? And you forfeit your soul. Or what can a man give in exchange for a soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous, gener sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. If anyone's going to come after me, follow me, follow my ways, there has to be a denial of self. There has to be the sense of surrender. They have to take up their cross. Now, what is that? Again, Mark, because the, the, the original readers of this would have totally understood what he meant by taking up your cross. In our day and time, it maybe loses its impact. But in, that, in this first century context, to take up your cross literally meant it was the way the person who was being crucified on the cross would literally take up the cross beam and carry it to the place of execution. Jesus does this. Uh, he carries his cross, the cross beam partway, and then because he's just physically exhausted and, and bleeding uh, all over the place because of what he had experienced, he can't fiz, uh, finish carrying. So someone else carries Jesus' cross. But this was a, they would have seen people as they went to Jerusalem. They would have seen thieves and criminals carrying the cross beam from where they were sentenced to the place of execution. Now, 
for those who are original readers of Mark who are living in Rome, this probably meant for some of them a very literal understanding. That some of them, because of their, uh, their walk with God and the government that was in charge at the time, would have, phys- would have really meant, literally meant carrying their cross to a place of execution. So in a way, Mark is letting them know what, is hap- what, it will, what happened to Jesus. Many will be asked to walk in that same path. And he's letting them know that. But for us today, uh, we're not going to physically be carrying our cross. But, so what is, what is Jesus saying to us today, a number of years later? There is a sense of suffering. There is a sense of surrender. There is a sense of death. That's not always going to be easy. But there's also, I believe, maybe hidden in this imagery of carrying your cross and, and the way Luke records it in his gospel. He says, daily. And again, it's obviously, he's not talking literally because if someone's literally like carrying the cross, they're going to die. So it can't happen every day. So it's more imagery. Daily pick up your cross. What does he mean by that? What, what can we extract from that? One of all those things, suffering and death and surrender and, and it's not always going to be easy. There's also this sense of perspective. Think for a moment, what is going through a person's mind as they make their way to their place of death? I would say it's only those things that really matter. Significant. The cares, the concerns that at one moment were, this is so important. In that moment, they don't matter. And I think there's a sense of perspective that this imagery brings that live for what matters. If you're going to follow me, live for what matters. We deny ourselves, we carry our cross, and this imagery we follow, we, we follow him. We follow ways to the end, to the destination. So in a way today, friends, just to bring this kind of to a conclusion, I believe the disciples' journey, in a way, is a picture of our journey. We have a destination We have a life to come. If we believe in Jesus, we know his kingdom is going to come at one point. And it will be life like it's meant to be lived. But let's not at the same time as we long and wait for that destination to come, let's not miss the journey and the questions that will surface along the journey and not be afraid of those questions, but to realize God is strategically surfacing those questions at that moment to reveal more about who he is and what we believe about him and think about him to then further shape who we are on this journey so that we learn some things and we unlearn. And through our lives, we follow him, showing who he is to those that God puts in our lives. So we'll have moments of confession We say, God, we believe these things. And at the same time, there'll be moments of confusion. I don't get it. But we continue to follow him in the midst of it. Let me pray for us. And the worship team wants to make their way up. So God, thank you for Mark chapter 8. And even just Mark putting it, organizing his letter, his, his account, his narrative in such a way that this is right here. And even where Jesus is and located. And So God, we... Just acknowledge maybe some of the questions um, that have surfaced even just recently in our lives or this last month or last year. I pray today we maybe see them with new eyes. And God, would we uh, 
walk with you on this way, follow you on this way. It won't be easy. It'll be challenging at times. Would we have perspective on what really matters and not waste our lives, forfeit our souls, but live for you in what matters? Help us to learn the things we need to learn and help us, God. It's probably as, it's harder to unlearn some things, but would you help us on this journey so that people see you through our lives? And Lord, we pray all these things in your name. Amen.